you know, if you're an organization that's trying to uh, manage the enterprise from a cultural level, from a from a change standpoint, um, you absolutely must have highly capable HCM systems in place and uh, progressively minded HR and practitioners. And by progressively minded, I mean folks who see their role as more than just a, an administrative paper pushing position, but as as being agents of change in the organization. This is the ERP Organizational Change Journal podcast, brought to you by Nestle & Associates, a Newport Beach, California-based ERP organizational change management firm serving the private equity industry. The ERP OCJ seeks to share expertise, insight, experience, and research, and to create effective conversation to help guide ERP organizational change to real, measurable, and verified success. And now, here's your ERP expert and host, the founder of Nestle & Associates, Dr. Jack Nestle. Hello everyone, Jack here. Today we're going to focus on human capital management, or ACM, in the future of work. In any ERP organizational change effort, managing, developing, and training stakeholders plays a crucial role. A sound HCM program has the potential to improve competitive advantage. As shared in a previous post, organizational stakeholder group and individual diversity may exist in many forms, such as value, experience, positional, educational, gender, ethnicity, age, functional knowledge, or even motivational diversities. Different types of diversity or a combination of diversities can create dynamics that may impact organizational team performance. As noted by Forbes, quote, human capital management refers to a set of activities that convert traditional HR functions into opportunities that lead to increased efficiency, interest, and revenue for the organization. So let's explore this idea further. Let's explore the value of a strong HCM program and its potential impact on ERP success. All of us here at the ERP OCJ hope you find this podcast useful as we share lessons learned, discover best practices, and explore the human element components of ERP organizational change. In this episode, we will discuss HCM stakeholders in the future of work with Brent Skinner. Brent is a human capital management or ACM subject matter expert, co-founder and principal analyst at 360 Insights. Brent Skinner is also host of the hashtag HR Tech Chat video podcast. He is a frequent voice in the press and speaker at industry events. And Brent enjoys exploring and discussing the future of work. Joining us from New Hampshire, Brent, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Jack, uh, for that introduction. It's an absolute pleasure to be here on the on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. I think that this whole idea of HCM is a, a very valuable uh, idea within any organization. Uh, so I can't wait to share some of this information with our listeners today. But uh, Brent, before we get started, can you tell us more? Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so again, the name's Brent Skinner and co-founder of 360 Insights, where I lead the uh, HCM practice area as principal and director. Um, and I've been in this space for, gosh, I think it's been uh, going on 17 years uh, in the coming year. <laughs> um, and I've been in many swim lanes. Uh, haven't been a practitioner in HR, uh, but I've worked on the vendor, the technology vendor side a couple of times, once at Ceridian around the time that they acquired Dayforce, and then later, much more recently, at Cornerstone On Demand in their thought leadership and advisory services group. And we worked very closely with pre-sales on that team and also helping to develop the strategic communication and uh, messaging for the organization. Um, I've also been an analyst previously in a, in a previous life. I've had so many previous lives. Um, that was at a, another uh, analyst firm, boutique firm based in Boston, where we looked extensively at the return on investment of HCM technology deployments, uh, what the productivity gains, you know, efficiencies, uh, newfound efficiencies, what kind of money did uh, those organizations save, these sorts of things from uh, deploying a new modern HCM uh, suite. And I would be remiss without mentioning also that uh, many moons ago, I was a technology editor for Human Resource Outsourcing Today, HRO Today, uh, which is, I, I would say that's where I sort of really in earnest, I started really, really immersing myself in HCM. So, And just a little bit about 360 Insights itself. We are an analyst firm, a research and consulting firm. And 
just as any other uh, boutique analyst firm or even the, the larger ones, we have our own sort of take or uh, our angle on uh, enterprise software. And we cover uh, many areas of, of the enterprise, not just HCM, which is what I had at 360 Insights. But we're very keen on learning uh, as much as we can about the decision-making process in buying enterprise software. It's changed considerably over the last I'd say 15 years or so. Some of this is a little bit old hat, but it's worth just mentioning. You know, back when it was on-premises software, software that lived on the computers or the servers at the company, it was very much IT driving the bus and making the decisions when it came to enterprise software. And HCM was no different. Uh, Fast forward to today, with the advent of the cloud, it really precipitated this. And Today, there's so many stakeholders involved. IT still has a say, but uh, not nearly as much as they used to. Uh, But you have chief financial officers involved. We've seen chief operations officers involved in HCM deals. We've seen employee experience councils involved in deals. Uh, You obviously have your line manager, which in my area would be the director level person in HR. Um, And you might have the CHRO and even sometimes a CEO involved. So that's a lot of people to sort of reconcile or uh, their conflicting priorities, if you will, right, when it comes to uh, an understanding of what enterprise software delivers. And in the HCM space, it's particularly interesting, uh, the types of uh, stories you can unearth. I I bet. Well, thanks for that, uh, Brent. We appreciate it. So today's conversation is hopefully to share with our listeners and maybe bridge the gap a bit between what is HCM and its value to the organization and what potential impact that could actually have on an ERP organizational change effort. Really looking forward to sharing some of your insight with our listeners today. Well, I just have a few thoughts on that in general, uh, thinking about the value of HCM to an organization. Uh, that's a really interesting one. And at 360 Insights, we like to look at it actually uh, as HCM having two hemispheres, if you will. One is concrete and the other is abstract. Uh, the concrete HCM, that's the stuff that's very easily quantified, uh, usually from a financial standpoint in terms of labor expenditure. Maybe you have inefficient processes in place because you have an old technology or a badly deployed or it's going to be implemented, badly implemented technology. Um, so you have a lot of manual work and whatnot. It's costing you more in labor expenditure than you'd like. And concrete HCM is really focused on minimizing those inefficiencies and automating processes and these sorts of things. And this is the kind of thing that has relegated HR to its sort of cost center status in the organization for a very long time. But the other side of the coin or the other hemisphere is abstract HCM because HCM practices and the technology for it can actually have a profound impact on uh, employee sentiment in the organization, the employee experience, job satisfaction, the employer culture, and ultimately the employer brand, which of course is the tip of the spear when you're going out there to attract new talents to the organization and is certainly the glue that uh, retains existing talent. And so folks that work in HCM, folks whose uh, jobs intersect with HCM, it's very important for them to understand that, that HCM delivers these two areas of value, if you will. And, and it's very important to have a balanced approach to that. If you're too focused on the concrete HCM, then you're just going to keep going down that path of eliminating administration and never thinking about sort of the upside, uh, what I like to call the long tail value of HCM, which is if you put the effort in to the abstract HCM, uh, then then you're going to see that over time, which is an increase in profits and all these other sorts of nice things that organizations obviously want and that contribute to their perpetuity, if you will. Yeah, very interesting. That, that's interesting. I'm, I'm looking forward to diving into uh, that idea a little bit more, Brent. You know, research does suggest that stakeholder diversity in its many forms is a significant factor within an organizational team structure that needs to be addressed and accounted for and left unmanned it may contribute negatively to ERP organizational change. But organizations need team diversity due to its impact on organizational performance, and organizations need to understand how to manage team diversity, management, and development. And therefore, each stakeholder group often consists of a large degree of diversity in terms of expectations, as I'd mentioned earlier, you know, realities and human capital requirements needed for an ERP organization uh, change endeavor. And so, you know, I, the reason I mentioned that, Brian, is because dear, you, you'd mentioned culture uh, when you were talking mm-hmm. about HCM. 
And so I'd like to explore that idea in this episode on how HCM can contribute to improve decision-making, alignment, teamwork, and culture. And so um, I I know, Brent, I'm going to challenge you here for a moment, but if you could, in one sentence, how would you define HCM for our listeners? So at the intro of the podcast, I I gave a definition based on Forbes, right? But how would Brent define HCM in one sentence? Thank you for challenging me on that. I will say that I'm going to try to keep this literally to grammatically one sentence. (laughs) Uh, HCM uh, consists of practices and technology that help an organization manage the employment of people. So then, Brent, a, a follow-up to that, you know, you, you talk about this really interesting idea about abstract and concrete, but in general, what value would you say does a good HCM program bring to large-scale organizational change and why? Okay. Uh, that There's a lot to unpack there, and I'll just preface this by saying I'm sure I'm going to miss some important key, key yeah. points. Uh, but one thing that comes to mind right off the bat is modern technology for HCM brings with it powerful analytics that um, HR and also line managers who are close to the employee experience can monitor, keep track of to help the organization manage its workforce and I would say optimize its diversity. And this is a very, very um, key point that I think is uh, absolutely essential for folks to understand is that, you know, if you're an organization that's trying to uh, manage the enterprise from a cultural level, from a, from a change standpoint, um, you absolutely must have highly capable HCM systems in place and uh, progressively minded HR and practitioners. And by progressively minded, I mean folks who see their role as more than just a, an administrative paper pushing position, but as, as being agents of change in the organization. Interesting. Well, thank you for that. Hey, Brent, I'm going to throw in a little bit of a tangent for you while I'm thinking about it, but I'm curious on this evolution. Can you tell me your thoughts on the rise of the chief people officer? A a little bit off topic, but uh, that's always been an idea. uh, And, and, you know, that's that's a position you, you see more and more over the years of various organizations. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. Uh, Many, many thoughts. Um, (laughs) It's really interesting. Where do I start here? Um, I was speaking with a with a coworker of mine when I was at Cornerstone, a really smart thinker, and we were having kind of a conversation around the chief people officer and, you know, again, sort of juxtaposed with the chief human resource officer. And it was really interesting. He, he shared with me uh, a link, and I wish I had it in front of me. I, I won't take the time to dig for it right now. Uh, but uh, one of the uh, research firms out there several years ago published a report. It was called the CHRO and the C-H-R-O-O. C-H-R-O-O stood for Chief Human Resource Operations Officer. And this is sort of a back, uh, sort of backing into the Chief People Officer idea. I think uh, many years ago, uh, organizations started, you know, I would say on the, the, the leading edge, organizations were starting to understand, well, you know, there's two roles. Again, the abstract and concrete ACM, if you want to think about it that way, or if you want to think about efficiency and empathy, you want to think about tactical and strategic or soft and hard HR, however you want to think about it, right? The idea is that part of the job is that administrative side of things. And then part of it is is that that cultural, that employer brand side of things. And I think that one point, the uh, just industry sort of realized maybe we need a chief people officer as well instead of just a chief HR officer. I think that's really interesting. I will tell you that there are some organizations that just have a chief people officer and that person uh, leads HR as well as macro organization-wide cultural efforts, betterment, however, whatever you want to call it. Sure. Um, and I want to throw something else out there just to spice this up even more. I know of at least one organization, and, and folks go go to our website. I actually have an episode of the podcast about this. Um, there's an organization uh, that I know of that actually aligns marketing. And we put it this way, their chief marketing officer and chief people officer work hand in hand very closely on a daily basis, always aligning the employer culture and employer brand with the uh, the customer brand, the, uh, the customer experience and the employee experience. And I think that's very interesting. And I think a lot of more organizations are going to do that. And I think the organizations that will find that easiest to do, I think, are the folks that have technically 
a chief people officer in place or they have a CHRO, chief human resource officer, that's very much chief people officer minded. Um, those are a few of my thoughts on that on that subject. Well, thanks, Brent. That That's very interesting, especially this idea of aligning the chief marketing officer with the chief people officer. And, you know, again, the idea of bridging the gap between what your customers want and therefore building the proper internal culture to support, uh, I guess, that mission, right? Mm-hmm. Did, I, did I summarize that correctly? I, it's a very powerful idea in my view. Yeah, uh, it, it is. It absolutely is. And yeah, I'd say that's a good summarization. And I, and I would just add uh, quickly here that it makes a lot of sense to do that. I can't think of any at the moment, but I'm absolutely positive that there's some business models where that might not be the way to go. But I would say a lot of organizations, a lot of business models, a lot of industries, it makes a lot of sense to align the employer brand with the with a customer brand, the external brand. Yeah. Because if you think about it, you know, your brand, whatever it is, is a tip of the spear and uh, your potential uh, new hires of the future, right? Their first experience with you as a brand might be uh, via the customer brand. Uh, even if they're not in the market for what it is that you offer as an organization, they might stumble across it at some point. And I like to say, you know, recruiters are sort of the tip of the spear when it comes to your employer brand. And uh, why not have their understanding of the brand aligned with the customer brand. I don't even know if aligned is the right word. Maybe it's just just making them one and the same. Yeah. Interesting idea. I think that's something uh, that we could uh, dig into. But Brent, this next question is really a team decision-making question that can sometimes be a significant challenge for organizations. And ERP software selection plays a crucial role in ERP success. I mean, selecting the right software in terms of functions and features and how it models your business is is absolutely fundamental to ERP success. But you share on your website, and I just want to share a quick quote, and obviously this is in the context of HCM, but you share that, quote, the buy-in cycle for enterprise software and technology should not be a power struggle between departments. 360 Insights is a research firm providing deep understanding of how to bridge the gap in perception and priorities between stakeholders. Through our research, we unearth strategic approaches for streamlining the decision-making process, successfully managing solutions, and maximizing value from business software and technology investments, end quote. Can you um, maybe share just from even from a high level, some of your strategy with our listeners in, in accomplishing that goal? Yeah. So just to clarify, we are a research organization and a consultancy, but um, in my role, what I am doing with my team on a regular basis is speak end users. And so this is probably a good point to just mention a type of a report that we that we published that's absolutely inextricably linked to this conversation. It's called an anatomy of a decision. And in that report, we look specifically at the decision-making process that was involved in choosing vendor X over vendors Y and Z. So what were the, uh, the pain points? What was the possibly eureka moment or more of a cumulative thing where the organization realized they needed to make a change? Uh, how did they go about sourcing the uh, short list of vendors that they looked at? Why did they choose vendor X over Y and Z? And then, you know, how did that decision-making process go? Who were the people involved? Uh, and how did that internal champion, that point of contact, the person typically who ran the implementation after the vendor was uh, selected, how did that person reconcile all those, I would say, competing priorities? Um, and, and I will say that in our reports, we look to unearth success. You know, how did these organizations uh, navigate these decision-making these labyrinthine decision-making processes, if you will, right? Um, and we hope that our research is able to unearth maybe some best practices or to uh, help folks who are about to make that decision maybe see how someone else did it. I would say that that one of the best practices is that there be one point person who's involved in that process. Otherwise, you know, if you have too many cooks in the kitchen, uh, you may have too many cooks. You may have many cooks in the kitchen. Let's put it that way, right? But yeah. if you have more than one head chef, then you might be in trouble, right? So you need to have sort of a, a somebody who's sort of coordinating it, the hub person. I would say also, you know, if you're a vendor, 
let's say you're on the vendor side and you're navigating this from from the sales side of things, uh, do not expect to have direct access to the ultimate decision maker. That almost never happens. Uh, when I was at a Cornerstone on uh, working and supporting pre-sales, we would help those organizations. We would help the salesperson's prospect understand the type of ROI that they were probably going to achieve uh, by making the right decision and, and uh, choosing Cornerstone in their learning systems, for instance, right? And then what we would do is we would develop a presentation, a slide deck, and we would would give it to that point person who would then take that and present it themselves to say their maybe it's their CFO or their CEO or whoever the person, large organization, maybe a senior vice president or someone like that, who was ultimately responsible for making the decision to say yes or no, to choose Cornerstone over someone else. And so I would say if you're on the vendor side of this, do not expect to uh, have direct access to that ultimate decision maker. You're going to be equipping uh, an internal champion who is then going to make the case themselves for you. Yeah. And if you're on the uh, the user side, I would say if it's a small organization, I would vie for as much decision-making power as possible in the process and, and expect it. And if I were in a large organization, I would vie for as much decision-making power as, as possible, but not necessarily expect as much, right? Um, yeah. There's a yeah. Loop, yeah. I could go on and on on this one, but uh, just to, to land the plane here on this particular question, uh, I don't know if we have unearthed any sort of hard best practices, common denominators that really work in every situation. I think it's more of telling these stories and making them available for people to download and read the reports and understand how other people are doing things in this much more complicated environment and drawing inspiration from those experiences to make their own experience better. Yeah. Yeah. Great insight. And Brent, I would like to just follow up on that question, on this previous question, just a little bit by sharing a post that you have on your website. And we'll, we'll put this link in our show notes uh, as well. But the article or the post was titled, Is Technology Vendor Selection Really Just About Technology Vendor Selection? In that, again, I'd like to share a quote. The article mentions, as can be imagined, our discussion meandered smack dab into 360 Insights' own core focus, understanding the evolving decision-making process in enterprise software. For one, it's important for buying organizations to advocate for themselves. When it comes to their needs, it's a little bit risky to completely rely on the vendor from sales to implementation. Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to repeat that. It's a little bit risky to completely rely on the vendor from sales to implementation, Brian said. Uh, this is the gentleman, I believe he's from uh, Anavio. In, Anavio, yeah. yes. Yeah. And again, the, this article will be in our show notes. Yeah. Um, and then it concludes by saying, ideally, you have some way of owning that as a client and seeing it through as a client. Mm -hmm. um, and again, we're just diving just a little bit deeper and you got into this idea in your response to the previous question, uh, but can you tell our listeners more? Can you elaborate on this idea of owning the process and, and really how it can be a bit risky to rely on the vendor from the sales to the implementation? Yeah, yeah. So um, that was an, a, uh, an episode of our of our podcast, HR Tech Chat, where I spoke with uh, the co-managing partners of Enavrio, uh, Brenda Laughlin and Brian Turk, who I know very well. And, uh, Brenda and Brian both work with end users to help them understand what their HCM processes should look like and uh, what they should do moving forward to make them better. And sometimes that involves new technology. So I think that the gist of what um, you're looking at there and what you mentioned, what you quoted from, from that particular podcast notes, I'm going to scope out a little bit here. It's this idea that, that a user, a buyer might think that they need a new technology and they may very well, and that may very well be the case, but at the same time, it might not be. And even if it were the case, it's absolutely essential to do the due diligence to understand how their processes are, what are their workflows, and again, specifically in HCM uh, regarding this particular podcast that you were referring to. But understanding what the workflows are and making sure that those are as efficient and pertinent as possible. And then maybe figuring out whether the existing technology in place might have been implemented wrong. It 
might just need to be re-implemented uh, so that it can be used properly. And then sometimes making the decision then to go out to a new vendor to rip out whatever is in place in them and uh, uh, implement and deploy something brand new. So the idea here is that uh, you wouldn't get any of that insight if you just made the snap decision at an early point in the process to well, we need a new technology for our HCM processes because what we have isn't working, you know, thinking that and then going yeah. out there to a vendor and then sort of relying on that vendor from sales through implementation. You could end up with something uh, that, that's very uh, misaligned to what your needs actually are. Yeah, and I think that, yeah. aqua- that, that applies to not just HCM, but any, any area of the enterprise, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Brent. Uh, you, you guys had some good articles with some great points, and, and I, I absolutely would like to share some of those out with our listeners today. But as you know, as, as an organization, and I would say especially in the context of large-scale ERP organizational change, the definition and alignment of success plays a crucial role not only within the organization and within the context of ERP, but also at the individual level. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important that, um, you know, as leaders of an organization that we understand that idea and on your website, you have an article called the changing definition of success. Mm-hmm. And this was posted by Jennifer Dole. Yeah. And yeah. the article shares that, quote, we all have different ideas of what success looks like, whether it be achieving goals, making a difference, being happy and fulfilled. In the past, success was often defined by things like job title, salary and level of education. And while those things are still important to many people, they are no longer the only things that matter. Nowadays, more and more people are focused on making a difference and being happy and fulfilled, end quote. Do you have any thoughts, Brent, or can you share what does that mean to organizational success and what can organizations actually do to tactically consider that idea? I think, it, yeah. And, and by the way, that, that post was written by my colleague, Jennifer Dole, uh, who's a principal and director and principal analyst covering talent management uh, within the HCM practice here. Um, she's a former colleague of mine from Cornerstone as well. Um, I think the gist, if I were to whittle it down to maybe a soundbite here, <laughs> let me try, <laughs> let me see if I can uh, roll a soundbite uh, off the cuff here. Um, organizations cannot expect to succeed today without making sure their employees succeed. That might be, um, I, that might capture the gist of this idea. And so let me, let me dig deeper now. Um, this is all mixed up with the, uh, with the great resignation, which I'm sure you've heard of. Uh, it's, it's become a little bit of a tired trope at this point, but <laughs> you know, the pandemic, the worldwide pandemic, it really precipitated and fast forwarded a number of trends that were already in, uh, set in motion, but moving much more slowly ahead of it. Uh, and in one of those, the big one was uh, in the HCM space anyway, was the employee experience, how important it was. We had, ahead of the pandemic, you would, you'd be hard pressed to find any organization that would say outright explicitly, that the employee experience doesn't matter, right? But at the same time, it was more of of a paying lip service as opposed to really investing in it uh, to ensure that the employee experience was as uh, optimized as possible to maximize retention and attraction of new talent. The pandemic happens and all of a sudden, the employee experience is absolutely fundamental to productivity. It's really funny how a, uh, a disruption of that magnitude laid bare this basic truth. And so in part of it was the urgency and the massive disruption all of a sudden made the employee experience absolutely essential to organizational success. You had businesses everywhere scrambling to put something together in terms of processes and also technology to support that employee experience as much as possible. So that's really interesting that the employee experience all of a sudden took on so much importance with uh, uh, attendant with the the massive disruption of the pandemic. Um, This is tied in with the changing definition of success. So you have folks now who are kind of uh, from the employee side, right, thinking, okay, we had a chance over the over about an 18 to 24 month period to really kind of reassess uh, our goals in life. As I say, I use the royal hour, if you will, right? Um, yeah, right. And, and a lot of folks decided, hey, you know, it's not necessarily what Jen was saying. It's not necessarily position or title or moving up the corporate ladder. It still is for some people, but not for everyone. 
But you have a lot of very, very talented people who have these changing, sort of this evolving understanding of what success is for them. As a business in today, you still need these people. <laughs> and I think that's the point mm-hmm. is you can't expect them to, you have to adapt as an organization to the facts on the ground, the reality out there, the macro culture, if you will, right? If you don't adapt your employer culture to the macro culture, then people are just going to leave your organization. And many people might say that, hey, you know, we have this uh, looming, uh, you know, potential economic slowdown and all this kind of stuff. And this is all happy, feel-good talk. And uh, once the once jobs become scarce or scarcer than uh, le- less abundant, let's put it that way, uh, that yeah, right. none of this stuff is going to matter. It's going to go back to the bad old ways. And, and you might even have some you know, people, you know, rubbing their hands uh, slightly maniacally waiting for that. (laughs) But but at the same time, I don't think so. Because you have too many other trends at play as well. You have global mobility. Just look at the employer of record market. Uh, These are organizations that help companies that are quickly expanding into new international locales. You need an employer record to help you, employer of record to help you stand up uh, a legal entity capable of employing those people uh, right away. But people are starting to use organizations are starting to use employers of record just to find the best talent. It's not necessarily that you need to expand your operations into a new geography, but you need to hire as a W-2 employee, somebody who lives in an entirely different region of the world. And you have that capability today. On the employee side, they have that flexibility to move around. And, And so I just don't see uh, the economic slowdown necessarily affecting this. I think organizations still at the end of the day will need to adapt more than they have in the past to employee sentiment and employer, uh, the macro culture uh, to ensure their, their own success. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's great insight, Brent. I, I really like that. And, you know, I think that this idea of how as individual stakeholders, we define success has everything to do with motivation, right? And motivation is critical in a large scale uh, change of any kind, let alone ERP. You know, there's often, there's knowledge factors, you know, that stakeholders may or may not have uh, for any specific task or project. And then there's organizational obstacles, right? In terms of the way in which culture is positively or negatively influenced. Uh, And then there's motivational factors due to a variety of different um, things, I would say. But the definition of success and how your stakeholders perceive success uh, I think just understanding that is very important for any any leadership team. Yeah. Brent, uh, I want to ask you about a uh, another podcast that you had on HR Tech Chat. And this particular podcast was with AbilityMap CEO and co-founder Mike Erlin and Mike Bollinger. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. the vice president, I believe, uh, of strategic initiatives at Cornerstone On Demand. And I thought it was a nice conversation you had with them titled Informing Artificial Intelligence. And I'm going to quote you. I, I believe it was you. I, I apologize. I'll, I'll make sure this is correct in our show notes. <laughs> and in the podcast, quote, after all, most of us would like to think that the behavior of AI as it grows eventually to an exceptionally high level of sophistication and begins to take over higher level decision making will continue to reflect what we hold dear as, quote unquote, humanness. So what do you think will be the role of AI and not only in in HCM, but just in general, what role will AI play on the future of work? And that's something you could talk about for, for an hour or two. But just what are your general thoughts on that whole idea? Yeah, yeah. No, th- thanks for reining me in and uh, keeping me honest here because AI is <laughs> is one of my favorite topics and, and it can go on forever um, in terms of a conversation. Uh, that was a great conversation with Mike Erlin and Mike uh, Bollinger wow. um, uh, on that podcast. And, and I don't recall whether it was uh, whether it was I was the one who said that or or one of the other one of the two mics, but it was the conclusion that we drew, and this is the idea that just to, just to close the loop on that, you know that that uh, for AI to be as uh, representative of a human sentiment as possible, uh, excuse me, to for it to be as 
fair as possible or responsible as possible, I think would be the best uh, way of putting it. It needs to needs to reflect as wide of a spectrum of human sentiment as possible. And that means that human sentiment that you might like that I might not like and the other way around. Um, and that's what is entailed. That's what's required. And that, that's a really interesting uh, episode that I would encourage anyone to give a listen to. But in terms of HCM and specifically, it, it is just impossible to talk about HCM today without AI uh, entering the uh, conversation at some point. You think about scheduling software. <laughs> there is there is machine, highly sophisticated machine learning, learning that some organizations refer to as AI. That's another conversation, by the way, a tangent. You know, yeah, is machine sure. learning, artificial intelligence, all this kind of stuff. And maybe eventually it will be. <laughs> uh, but mm-hmm. in, in any event, you have mach- highly, highly sophisticated machine learning that's that's uh, figuring out how to put together the best schedules possible, not only for an organization's, um, let's say, like a 7-Eleven for its, you know, to match store traffic, but also to optimize their employees' work-life balance, right? So that they can retain those folks because transactional skill jobs, that's that's a tough market to keep, to retain employees right now. Uh, not a week goes by where I hear about, hear about some restaurant or other that's um, – Closed down during a certain amount at certain time because they don't have the staff of it. But then you look at AI also. So that's one area. But AI also helps to extend the uh, serviceable life of an old clunky applicant tracking system, for instance, right? There's a lot of older ATS for short. There's a lot of old ATSs out there that organizations implemented uh, many, many years ago and are reluctant to rip out and replace with something new because there's a lot of information there that's um, available in case they get audited on their hiring practices. So they're very reluctant to get rid of it. But at the same time, it's making uh, life a you know, day-to-day work life, a living hell for the recruiters. <laughs> so there's, yeah, there's right. AI, there's, yeah, there's artificial intelligence out there that uh, sort of make, it's almost like artificial intelligence middleware uh, where it makes those ATSs more than livable for those organizations. So those are just two examples of where AI plays a huge role, uh, emerging uh, rapidly expanding role in HCM. So it's, it's impossible to talk about the future of work without speaking about artificial intelligence. I think it's going to be absolutely intertwined with it. And so just to kind of make a full circle here, that's why it's so important right now to inform AI with as wide and broad a spectrum of human sentiment as possible so that it can appear as fair as possible to as many people as possible. Absolutely. Uh, and I agree. Uh, certainly a topic. We could probably have a separate podcast just on that idea. I'd love uh, to. No doubt about it. <laughs> uh, and it's a fascinating uh, topic for sure. Brent, I do want to share, and I have a couple more articles that I'd like to share with our listeners uh, from your website. And one of those is called Whole Brain HCM, Knocking Down Software Silos and Solving for Industries. And in there, you mentioned that, quote, there's a domain of C-suites fixated on orderliness, efficiencies, productivity, and mathematical measurement. And then there's a domain galvanized by people, creativity, inspiration, and emotional Uh, The first is the C-suite's left brain. The other is its right brain. For organizational success, the economics of our day demand all of these preoccupations. And then the the article goes on to say, just two years ago, Accenture decided to give this idea a name, whole brain leadership, and these companies perform better financially. Can you tell us more about this idea in the context of HCM and positive organizational change? Yeah, um, it's one of my favorite topics. And and yes, it's now uh, over three years ago, I think, that uh, Accenture uh, came out with the idea of whole brain leadership. But it was really interesting because myself uh, sort of establishing this idea at 360 Insights uh, around the idea of abstract HCM and concrete HCM, it was very illuminating and intriguing for me to learn later that Accenture had come up with this idea of whole brain leadership, because there is a uh, common thread here. You know, when you want to talk about, you're talking about the C-suite, right? Again, yeah, you have the left-brained people and the right-brained people in the C-suite. I even learned that left brain and right brain is actually a theory that's been a little bit discounted, apparently in brain science, but it's still useful in terms of uh, explaining things. You have the the more Mm -hmm. concrete, mathematically inclined, you have the more abstract people, creative 
creatively inclined. And then you have sort of the CEO whose job is to synthesize those two camps um, ideas into something that that uh, resembles a good uh, direction for the organization. Right. Well, if you think about it from just the standpoint of uh, HR or HCM. Sometimes I use the terms HCM and HR interchangeably, even though technically they're not. Uh, But you think about the silos of HCM, right? There are very concrete left-brained activities involved, and then there are very right-brained, creative, abstract activities involved. Uh, And when we think about HCM as being divided into sort of the traditional silos, especially in talent management performance management, succession planning, compensation management, and then talent acquisition, we think about it as recruiting and then onboarding, all these, all of these discrete separate processes. I think it tends to further solidify, calcify, let's put it that way, the um, this thinking of the more concrete side of HCM. So if we think about knocking down the silos in HCM and realizing that, you know, talent acquisition all the way through performance management and learning is it all blends and it all takes place sort of uh, as a dance as opposed to a linear progression of things, uh, then we can start to break free of of the concreteness of being relegated just to concreteness in uh, in in HCM, and we can start to think about how it interrelates and how it how it affects the employees' uh, sentiment, their experience, and their willingness to stay with the organization. So that's really what I was getting at there. And if you want to go back to the leadership piece of that, right, uh, HR department needs to take on a, a whole brain leadership approach to HCM, and and that really is uh, organizational, right? Because we're talking about performance views of these sorts of things those are line managers to, uh, doing those if you if yeah, you're approaching totally right. yeah if you're approaching this stuff from a very linear sort of siloed perspective then maybe you're doing just an annual performance review uh, everybody hates the process and it nothing really comes of it much good right but if you think about it more as an integrated thing where it involves conversations uh, regular a regular cadence of conversations as opposed to assessments over the course of a year then it's pretty difficult to do that in a vacuum, you're talking about goals, you're talking about learning, you're talking about your employees' career aspirations on a regular basis. And so already you're talking about succession planning, compensation management, and all these other things in the same breath. And so that's what's going on there when you're looking at it, when you're approaching HCM as a whole whole HCM as opposed to uh, siloed. Yeah, great explanation, Brent. And really the key is, I I would say, is bridging that gap between that which is more concrete Mm -hmm. and more visible. You know, so maybe that's, uh, you know, in terms of productivity and mathematical measurement Mm -hmm. versus that which is more abstract, you know, maybe a little hard to recognize, which is, you know, people's creativity, inspiration and emotional well-being, I would say. (laughs) If I may add there super quickly. It's really interesting because I like to put it this way. You can't really capture that stuff in a conventional accounting spreadsheet, right? Because it needs to be an actual number, right? But I like to say this, try to argue against uh, employee satisfaction, creativity, their ability to to think about something other than a rote process. Try to argue that that's not good for the organization. The reason it doesn't translate to an accounting spreadsheet is because we don't know the exact number it's going to be, but it's pretty much a given that there's going to be an uptick in revenue, an uptick in uh, profitability, and these an uptick in uh, retention of top talent, all these sorts of things, which in the end are important. Yeah. Absolutely. And in fact, Brent, I would argue that um, based on some pretty sound research that those companies that rate high in those areas, and there's certainly different ways to measure these ideas of this more abstract things, right? Mm. Um, You know, values and teamwork and vision and, and those ideas, you can certainly take those ideas which are abstract and make them more concrete so that you can have productive conversations. Um, one of the tools we use uh, is the Denison model. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a basically an organizational culture survey that helps you, you know, take the temperature of the culture on some of these ideas, um, you know, some of these abstract uh, notions, I would say. But absolutely, there is a correlation between high-performing organizations 
and how well they perceive some of these abstract ideas in terms of the ability to be creative, the ability to be innovative, the ability to be inspirational. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a pretty crucial idea. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I wish I could remember the name of it exactly, but um, uh, Great Place to Work, which was acquired by UKG, I believe about a year and a half ago now, uh, they came up with a measurement that actually it's, it's the innovation something I I don't have time to look for it at the moment, so I'm mangling what it is. But but it's this <laughs> idea. It's this idea that organizations where more people feel like they're heard and that they're not mired by administrative um, paperwork or uh, red tape and these sorts of things. All these sorts of things uh, that are, that are reflective of old old ways of thinking and old processes. Those organizations experience. Uh, more innovation. And of course, innovation is the origins of uh, competitive advantage. Absolutely. Well, Brent, I'd like to conclude on the next couple of questions here are in regards to another uh, article. So we already talked about the article that you posted called Informing Artificial Intelligence, and that was posted in November of 2021. In June of 2021, you had another very interesting article, and it's titled Psychometric Models, AI, Talent Acquisition, Urgency, the Food Chain, and the Future of Work. (laughs) And it's a two-part question here for you related to this article, but you discuss psychometric models. Can you explain what that is and how organizations benefit from and maybe how they evolved? Yeah, uh, and then I'll ask you my follow-up. Yeah. Um, and, uh, we're talking about industrial psychology and personality assessments and these sorts of things. And uh, these aren't the MBTI, the Myers-Briggs, anymore. Uh, the Myers-Briggs, it's outdated. There's a lot of stuff out there and understanding that's much more nuanced and better and uh, more accurate in terms of reading potential employees and existing employees, frankly, uh, personalities and where they might do best in their work, in their careers, and these sorts of things. So that's my understanding um, that it's a much more sophisticated science today than it used to be. Well, let me ask you this. I'm going to share another quote. And this ties back to our artificial intelligence uh, conversation earlier as well. But it's, may I add that our relationship to automation is colored by our understanding that we are at the top of the food chain and our understanding and belief that robots will always be beneath us, question. By robots, I mean artificial intelligence. We want the robots to do what we don't want to do. We never consider the possibility that AI would eventually rather not do the stuff either. It doesn't occur to us that the AI may one day wish to replace us at doing the jobs we like to do. And when and if they do, how would their doing it not be automation? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think it, it kind of speaks for itself. But I'm, I'm so glad that um, that you noticed that particular article because I, I really enjoyed writing that one. We're a human centric world, right? Yeah. Um, and we're developing technology with the implicit postulate in our head that it's it's to serve us, right? Um, and I think the uh, idea that that it might develop to the point where it no longer serves us, but perhaps itself. <laughs> is uh, something that, that we really need to think about. And if you have uh, technology that's, well, there's a couple things going on here. So one of the things is just, you know, what do we think of when we think automation? We think of, oh yeah, administrative processes that we don't want to do, administrative work that we want to just make easier. We want to just give the computers that job, right? That is automation, uh, what has been up to this point. But I think that it, it doesn't, that doesn't necessarily have to be the, um, the full scope of the definition of automation. I think automation can eventually uh, encompass any process or um, activity that can be computerized, if you will, or, or seeded to technology. Um, and so if you look at it that way, then all of a sudden automation becomes this all encompassing thing. And it's not just about things that we don't want to do anymore, but it's about anything that we could potentially do. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so interesting. Well, Brent, thank you so much for your time yeah. today. Boy, this uh, conversation flew and it was so fun. And and I know it was a mixed bag. Um, we've talked about some really fun ideas and topics But if you were to leave our listeners with a golden nugget um, in terms of a piece of advice for ERP organizational change, 
what would you say, you know, so looking at your experience and skill set and HCM and future work, what would you leave with our listeners as, as a little nugget of advice? Well, from what I understand, a lot of uh, enterprise transformation projects uh, arrive at HCM last. Not all the time, but a lot of them. And I, and I would just encourage leaders and the listeners of the podcast, uh, anyone involved in this sort of thing, to consider starting with HCM. Get your people processes, your, your HR transformation done first. And then that just might make a lot of the uh, rest of the organizational change that much easier too, because you have your people aligned to your culture. Yeah. Good advice. Well, Brent, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Can you tell our listeners how they can get in touch with you? Yeah, sure. Uh, our website is 360insights.com, and that's the number three in 60 written out insights, 360insights.com. And you can uh, contact us from there. We're always interested in hearing from folks and their user experience, whether it's uh, in using a technology or in just making the decision to uh, select this technology or that. And you'll see on our website in the menu an area to tell us your story, to leave your contact information, and we'll be in touch. My email address is bskinner, B as in boy, Skinner, with two N's, at in 360insights.com, bskinner at 360insights.com. And, uh, and Jack, thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome, and thank you. Uh, we really appreciate your time and your insight and, and your expertise. Uh, so thank you for sharing. Be well, and uh, we'll talk soon. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of the ERP OCJ podcast. This podcast is intended as a forum to study, share, and discuss ERP organizational change successes and challenges. We discuss the people, process, and technological components of ERP organizational change by drawing on knowledge from extensive research, collaborative learning, and practitioner expertise and experience. We are incredibly grateful to have friends, colleagues, and mentors join us in our podcast as we seek to promote, connect, and foster relationships in the ERP organizational change community and contribute to its success by bringing research and practice closer together. We want to make sure this is the most useful and insightful ERP podcast you listen to, and we'd love your help in doing so by leaving us feedback and a review. A great place to do so is at Apple Podcasts. Just click on the Listen in Apple Podcasts link, then click Ratings and Reviews, and let us know your thoughts. You can get more info about the show, including show notes and episode highlights for this and all of our episodes by visiting nestleandassociates.com and clicking the podcast option. Please join us again next week as we discuss the latest ERP organizational change research, practice, and stories. And don't forget to follow us on social media, hashtag the ERPOCJ. Thanks again for listening. Have a fantastic week.